It is now our pleasure to ask our brother John to come forward and lead us in the consideration of the body of Christ and its members. Well, brethren and sisters, it truly it is a privilege, of course, to gather together once more around the word. And may I take this opportunity just to add to Brother Roger's welcome to Sandra and to Graham. Uh, I might add a few personal details about them, which they won't tell you, of course, because they're a very shy couple. You would have noticed that Sunday morning with Graham. But Graham, of course, uh, until about four years or so ago, was the secretary of the what they call the Family Bible School in England, and that's the school to which, of course, uh, some of the brethren from here have gone, Brother Paul, myself, and, of course, Brother Johnny Knowles and a few others from Australia have gone to that school and Graham had the very onerous task of organising that. So that'll probably tell you something about his activities. He also organised our tour through England when 12 of us landed on his doorstep and uh, gave him no end of headaches in trying to organise not only our tour of England but also the accommodation angle, which wasn't easy and we did appreciate his labours. Uh, as for Sister Sandra, you may or may not know but she happens to be the daughter of Brother Arthur Pennington. If you look very closely, she does resemble him in everything but one aspect. She's not, she's a nice little lady, but, <laughs> but she looks like Arthur, and of course she's Arthur Pennington's daughter. So I know that they're probably somewhat embarrassed me telling you that, but that'll probably give you some idea who they are. And I know, brethren and sisters, that as far as the spirit of our nights are together, the spirit of unity, we would have all been thrilled to hear Graham on Sunday morning, when of course he spoke to us, and I heard many brethren and sisters say, well, he not only says what you know we all think, he not only expressed what we all, how we all think, but he didn't even say it like an Englishman. <laughs> so uh, I think that says volumes about the same spirit of faith that dominates, I suppose, all the brotherhood, irrespective of their nationalities, however they sound. If the love of the truth is in anyone, brethren and sisters, it creates that family spirit. Something you just cannot express. And for Graham and Sandra to bring that here with them and to disseminate that amongst us, I think in itself, is, is an illustration of what we're trying to say in these little chats together. The value of ecclesial unity we try to emphasise last week, brethren and sisters, showed from Psalm 133 that it's one of the highest virtues, one of the highest forms of good among the brethren and sisters of Christ, among the family of God. Truly, we must see it that way. And if we, if we can only see it as a good, of course, that's wonderful. But not only so, we try to point out, brethren and sisters, that the unity of this meeting is your defence and my defence. It's in our own interests to maintain that harmony of mind, both for ourselves and for our children, especially our teenagers. And what brother and sister who hasn't had teenagers come up through this Sunday school in the Ecclesia, who have been baptised, what brother and sister isn't thankful for the other families in this meeting. Try and imagine sometimes, brethren and sisters, if we were at odds with one another and bitterness arose, try and imagine how difficult it would be to explain to your teenagers why you don't talk to uncle and auntie so-and-so and the devastation that that would affect on their mind as far as their attitude to the truth is concerned. You just try and imagine that. Now we want to emphasise, brethren and sisters, that in these talks together about unity, I don't think anyone here would misunderstand us. This ecclesia has never been known to preach unity at any price. But sometimes, you know, because we say that, you know, no one wants peace at any price and we don't want unity at any price, sometimes we deprecate unity itself by, by so saying. Let's never do that. 
It's a wonderful and a marvellous thing to move around this ecclesia and to feel at one with your brethren and sisters. That's something, brethren and sisters, I think we ought to value. Now, in trying to emphasise the need for unity, remember the covenant of the rainbow. We made the point about the rainbow. And just to emphasise again, the two aspects, the two things we noted about that rainbow, and that in the context of when it was given in Genesis chapter 9, it was not given, brethren and sisters, it was not given as a symbol of earth's perfection. But if you read carefully, it was given as a symbol of God's determination to save man despite his weaknesses. And you read that carefully. Man's heart is evil from his youthful awakening. Nevertheless, says God, I will work among mankind. I will save some of those people despite their weaknesses. And that's what that arch in the sky tells us, brethren and sisters, that God would never destroy the earth with a flood again and that there is his covenant to save all flesh, not all flesh in the totality of every man, woman and child, but every living thing or all flesh, as it's repeated seven times, in the sense that every kind of person, irrespective of their background, of their hereditary factors, whatever may enter into their life, God will and can save them, and they will make up and constitute that rainbow which will arch in the political heavens in the future age. Not one of them perfect because they, they need the seven colours to make the white. So if we can keep two things in our mind, and these two things are these, one, that that rainbow is telling us that God is, will, is determined to save us, if we will allow him, from ourselves. And secondly, that if we're going into the kingdom of God as part of the rainbowed angel, we won't be there without our brothers and sisters, because it's going to need the ecclesia of God the house of God, together to reflect that white light. Now, if we can keep that in our mind, and when that symbol appears, think of your brothers and sisters, your reds, your oranges, your yellows, your greens, your blue, your indigo and violets, what, wherever you might fall, in the, in the facets of God's wisdom, Ephesians 3. Think of the facets of God's wisdom reflected in that, the brothers and sisters with whom we have to do in this place. Now, if we can think about that, I think it'll do us a lot of good. Now, this evening we want to continue that theme, brethren and sisters, and it had been suggested at the end of our last class by some of the brethren here that it, it would be rather disjointed if we had the class on Ruth and then, and then the final night again on this unity night. It didn't matter to me one way or the other what happened, but I could see the wisdom of that. So we decided that we'd have these three nights together and we'd sort of add another one to it just to make the three. So what we want to do tonight is go on with our theme of unity, illustrating it from several passages of Scripture, monumental passages of scripture I might add and then on our final night I don't really know what we're going to do yet but we'll, I hope we'll be able to talk about how we're going to live together in the kingdom of God a little vision of the future now brother Jim Cowie's coming down of course in February and we're going to get a classic effort I believe on the, on the future age and all the events that will happen subsequent to Christ's return we won't impinge upon anything he's got to say but what I hope to do, brethren and sisters, is to talk about what you and I are going to do together forever in God's kingdom. And in that way, I hope we will be able to impress each other that if that's what we want to do forever, well, then we ought to want to do it now. Now, of course, as we pointed out, these things were not said because it happened to be an interesting subject. 
But as you know and I know, the evils of the day are creeping up on us. Nay, they are rushing up on us, brethren and sisters, and they do affect the ecclesia. And you know what happens, that when you get immorality come into the meeting and you have problems arise, you're going to get diversities of opinions as to how to handle it. And if we're not careful, as I said, what would happen is that good and sound brethren and sisters would be, can become easily divided over a matter of immorality to the point where immorality is almost, you might say, get, get a, is, is forgotten and bitterness arises over a difference of opinion how to handle it. Now that, I believe, is a very great danger. It's already been illustrated in the past few weeks that it can, that can really happen. And we've got to be on our guard against that. We need to be of one mind, sound mind. We need to be strong and zealous for the true principles of God. And we need to have the wisdom, brethren and sisters, to know how to apply that. Now, they are the dangers that are coming. And as far as the urgency of the times, if you want current affairs, you wouldn't want anything more than what you've got in the news at the moment with, with, with uh, America and Syria fronting each other up. What a situation that is. Look, brethren and sisters, when you get, you're talking about the Middle East, you're talking about, there are, really, there are all the Arab countries in Israel. But of the Arab countries, I suppose the one that would represent the strongest of them all is the Syrian country, is Syria. Now here's the USA confronting Syria. That's serious. It really is. That's really getting serious. Because now you've got a country there that the only country really in the Middle East that you could say that is almost totally backed by Russia is Syria. And here is America now, head on with Syria, over Lebanon. Oh, this is an incredible situation. And of course, Israel watching on the sidelines, I believe, dearly loving to have a crack at Syria, not just a simple skirmish, but an all-out row that they might finally bring that problem to an end. And you know, on top of the Golan Heights, where Israel sits today, brethren and sisters, it's about a 30-minute drive all downhill to Damascus. So Israel has a geographical advantage. Not only that, but Syria itself has internal problems. The whole thing is fraught with the gravest dangers. Look, President Assad of Syria belongs to a Shiite minority, a very small minority in Syria. The largest section of his population are all Sunni Muslims. And of course in the Muslims you have the, the Shiites and the Sunnis. Most of the Shiites, the majority, are in Iran. That's why you got that that mad situation in Iran because most of them are Shiites and the Shiites are the more fanatical of the Muslims. The Sunnis are the more liberals. Now, Syria is mainly made up very largely of Sunni Muslims. But the president and his brother and those two together virtually rule the country belong to a very small minority. Matter, matter, matter of fact, it's almost a family minority and they endeavour to run that country. So when it comes to a head-on collision with America, they're not going to find very much support from the Arab world because they won't know who to support. But they'll be looking to Russia. My word, they will. And so we have, therefore, an urgency about the situation, brethren and sisters. An urgency to get into the kingdom of God. And I know this, that we won't make it on our own. And therefore, there's an urgency about this situation. We need to realise the value of each other. You know, in our prayers, how do you pray to God? In our prayers, especially in our family prayers, when we do our daily reading, we should always pray for God's ecclesia. We're praying for ourselves when we do that. Pray for the strength of every brother and sister who names the name of Christ, that their strength will become our strength. And it's true. That is so true. Now tonight we want to have a brief look at some of these, I think, some of these wonderful passages of Scripture that deal specifically with our unity together 
Some of them extol the virtues of that unity and several of them point out the pitfalls, brethren and sisters, that, are, that can overcome us and cause disharmony, bitterness and wrangling and all those products of the flesh. Now we're all familiar, of course, with the 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. Used, I suppose, on many occasions, brethren and sisters, to illustrate the need for unity. Now in the 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, you have the Apostle Paul's dissertation on the spirit gifts. Now I've used this expression several times. I'll use it again. Don't misunderstand me. I'll explain. We don't have today the spirit gifts. But I believe that we have to exercise the spirit of the spirit gifts. By which I mean this. We haven't got the spirit to point out that there are nine different people in our meeting or nine different groups of people in our meeting who do different things. And there were nine different groups of people. Two of those were related. So that really there were seven groups. There were two related groups. But basically the ecclesia was divided into those groups so that the spirit said, you are a doer of such and such. You are a doer of such and such. Now we haven't got that. But we have got this, brethren and sisters, that every one of us have varying abilities. To quote the, Lords of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, every man according to his several ability. We got that. We can't help that. We have that by accident of birth. We have varying abilities. Now we bring them into the ecclesia of God. Apart from the word of God, those abilities are useless. But with the word imbibed through our mind, developing our characters, those abilities can be channeled to very profitable uh, channels and they won't be the same. And that's what I mean by having the spirit of the spirit gifts. We're not all doers of this or that. We're doers of various things, but we don't all do the same things. We have speaking brethren, we have those who can exhort better than they can lecture and those who can lecture better than they can exhort. We've got those who neither lecture or exhort but are wonderful Sunday school teachers. There are those who can do neither of those three things but who can help out in the practical administration of this ecclesia using their hands and their practical abilities and their organisational abilities that others haven't got. And we could go on ad infinitum of all the kaleidoscope that's in this meeting whereby we are able to show the various facets of God's wisdom. Now in the exercising of those abilities there we have that spirit of the spirit gifts because really we are what we are by the grace of God, to quote the Apostle Paul. Whatever abilities we have, we are what we are by the grace of God and we bring that into this meeting. Our job, brethren and sisters, is to be honest with ourselves, to find out what is our ability, not to superimpose something upon ourselves for which we're not fitted, but to be honest with ourselves, to find out what it is that we are suited for, irrespective of our personal aspirations, and then to work diligently at that, that we might cooperate together for the common good. Now unity, brethren and sisters, is organic. It's not that we're all the same. Paul makes that point. We are the bodies of Christ, but members in particular. You look at the human body, every member of it is different. I don't think my hand looks anything like my face or my feet. They're all different. You look at each member separately and the body is, looks all different. But combined together, it cooperates to make a cohesive whole. Now if we were all the same, 
If we were all cast in exactly the same mould, we would be forever squabbling because there would be no facet complementing the other. And that's what the body's like. It's made up of different components that it might cooperate together. The hand can do what the feet can't do. I've never written a letter yet with me toes. And the feet... And I don't see people walking around on their hands, except when they want to show off in front of their children or something like that. But we, that we use our members for what they're best suited and we don't force them into circumstances to do things that they can't do. We allow the body to do what it's best suited to do. And the body operates beautifully. Now in verse 7 of this chapter, Paul said this. He said, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now that's rather a, a poor translation, I suppose, although it does convey the sense. But the RSV says it this way, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for the common good. Now that's a wonderful expression, and that's what the Greek means. So when God gave the nine gifts, brethren and sisters, it wasn't that he might elevate nine separate groups in the ecclesia. He didn't do it for that reason. He gave the nine gifts that when they exercised those gifts, it would be for the common good, everyone's welfare. So if we're exercising an ability in God's ecclesia to demonstrate that we have that ability, then it's not being done for the common good and we can be assured, brethren and sisters, that we're not exercising that ability in the way that God intended because he intended it to be done for the common good. Now, never let us forget that. And do you know, in this chapter, we have an infallible test of our motives. It's very good to have an infallible test of your motive. I was talking to a brother last night, a very worthy brother of this meeting, and we were both talking about old times together. And one of the things we agreed upon, very very much agreed upon, was the fact that looking back over the years, one never is really, uh, can we say, uh, fully aware of one's own motive, why we do things. We sometimes think that we're very high, very, have very high ideals, that our motive is very perfect. And then we have our nagging doubts, well perhaps we really didn't do it for that reason after all. And when one gets older, you look back and think, well yes, I thought I did that for that reason, but now I can see a little bit more clearly there were somewhat baser reasons, perhaps, than what I really thought at the time was occupying my mind. But in this chapter, we have an infallible guide as to our feelings. You know what it is. It's in verse 26. And this, brothers and sisters, is something that you can apply and I can apply in our private lives and we can constantly come to this test. The point is that Paul says, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or, one member be honoured, and all the members rejoice with it. They're easy words to read, but they constitute, brethren and sisters, an infallible test a personal test that you can apply and I can apply in the privacy of our mind without anyone telling us about how we feel. Now, I find with myself, and I know I speak for many of you, it is easier to suffer with a brother when he suffers or a sister. But it's not so easy 
to rejoice when somebody else is on it and you're not. And you sometimes have you ever had those feelings, you know, you're a bit peeved that you're left out and someone else seems to be in the limelight and that they have a certain honour, an aura attaching to that honour that isn't sort of shining around you and yet your heart ought to be bubbling over with joy that they are so on it. It's the same, of course, in the sense with those who suffer, although it's easier because, you see, suffering sort of, it induces a sympathy, doesn't it? You can't help it. You see a person break down and cry, it induces out of you a sympathy that almost is irrepressible. It isn't so when you see a member on it. You know, you put that test sometimes to yourself. Ask yourself the question, was I really glad that that person was on it? Was I really or was I peeved about it? And if, you, if the answer, brethren and sisters, is the latter, then there's something wrong with your attitude, something wrong with my attitude, something seriously wrong with attitude. And that's a test that you can all apply. Now, we have had, unfortunately, in one sense, some very big suffering in this meeting. You know who, what I'm referring to when I say that. And I don't think anyone here was exempt in entering into that suffering. It was good for our soul as sad as it was. There's a reason for that, brethren and sisters. Never let that be lost upon us. And I want to remind you all that that suffering is not over and never will be until God's kingdom comes. Never forget that. If that is dim in our hearts, then we're lacking in the spirit of that chapter. We ought to remind ourselves about that. We ought to have that constantly in our mind. There's something missing here and it will be missing until Christ comes. And there's something missing in a lot of people's lives that'll be missing until Christ comes. Let's miss it with them. Now, let's keep that. Let's keep that into the forefront of our mind. Now, of course, there are dangers, and which the Apostle deals with in this chapter, of how we can easily divide. And he does this in a most interesting way. He really does. You see, he says in verses 15 and 16, If the foot shall say, Because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? But if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Now you look at verse 21. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. Now if you think the Apostle Paul's saying the same thing in those verses, then you're wrong, he's not. He's giving us a little illustration, brethren and sisters, of the two things that can divide a meeting. Now you look what he's saying. He's first of all saying this in verse 15. The foot is not of the... If the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I'm not of the body. So a foot is talking to a hand and is really upset that it doesn't come quite up to the ability of the hand. And it feels that nobody wants me because I'm not as good as the hand. But you come down to verse 21 and the eye cannot say to the hand, I've got no need of you. Here you've got a brother who thinks he's clearly superior to the other one. And because he thinks he is, he has the other one in contempt. So you find by a very skillful blending together of parts of the body, Paul points out the great dangers that exist as far as our unity is concerned. Now having said that in as many words, We'll try and show it to you, what, what he's saying here. Now he says that we are the members 
We are, the, we are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now we make a note here that the Apostle points out that members with similar abilities are liable to demonstrate envy. So you've got the foot and the hand. Now they're both members of action. They are similar members. But the foot is not just as important as the hand. And because it's a similar member, and he just doesn't come up to the, to, in comparison to the other, he feels he's not wanted. I'm not wanted here. I am not of the body. Nobody wants me. Now similarly, he points out the ear and the eye. Now they're both members of sensation. They are members of our senses. We sense things with the ear and the eye. And because they are similar, the same thing happens. But clearly, of course, the eye is a little bit superior to the ear. And so the ear says, nobody wants me. And you can see what the Apostle's saying there. So you've got members in your meeting who have similar abilities. So Roger and I may have a similar ability. But if it came to a choice for a you know, to do something special, well, let's say, oh, we'll have Roger. I don't want me. Clearly, pretty obvious what they don't want. And that's the attitude that happens, brethren and sisters, when you've got members in an ecclesia who have similar abilities. They are liable to demonstrate envy. Now, of course, we've got to guard against that. You know, there's a very simple remedy, as I've mentioned to you, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I am, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was no more or no less. He did, his, he did the best with what he had and with the gift that God had given him. And of course, with the Apostle Paul, that was an extraordinary gift. But by the grace of God, that's what he was. And we will not be rewarded, brethren and sisters, because we are slightly better than the other. Brother Hank, won't be rewarded because he's got a slightly better ability than Brother Foot. They will be rewarded in accordance with the percentage with which they use the ability they got. That's the point. Whatever abilities we have, we won't be rewarded according to the ability, but how we use that ability and with what diligence and care and dedication that we use it. And it could well be, in this particular case, you're taking a hypothetical case, it could well be that Brother Foot may be in the kingdom of God superior to Brother Hand. Not because brother, not because he had lesser ability, but because he used that ability better. So there we have members who are similar. They are liable to demonstrate envy. But where you've got members that are dissimilar, this is what happens. Again, we're the body of Christ and members in particular. But here are members with superior abilities and they are liable to demonstrate contempt. So this time you haven't got members of action or members of sensation. You've got an eye and a hand. One member of sensation, one member of action, dissimilar. And that one, brethren and sisters, is by far the superior to that one. And it says, <laughs> who did you? And it treats its brethren and sisters with absolute contempt. Now we mightn't say it like that, 
But you know, we, we, we say it in other ways. We talk about the rank and file. Don't we? Often <laughs> that expression here, the rank and file, by which we mean those below us. Or similar expressions. We may not even mean it that way, but that's how we talk sometimes. And the, the connotation's there. So we've got to be extremely careful that if we are superior or think we're superior, don't treat other people with contempt. Similarly here, you've got the head saying the foot. And again, you've got a member of sensation, this time the whole head, and, this, and, the, and of course a member of action, the foot, and clearly the head is superior, isn't it? I'd rather have get around with one leg without one head. And I mean, obviously this is the most superior member. And again, the attitude is, I've got no need of you. And so what do you find in the Ecclesia? You find that attitude expressed between the various groups. Either a brother and sister feels, I'm not wanted, or a brother thinks, really, we could get on quite well without everybody everybody else, but I'm indispensable. So there are your two attitudes. You know, brothers and sisters, we've got to guard against those attitudes creeping into our lives because they are going to be destructive of ecclesial unity. Let me tell you something else, an error I committed just recently, which I preach everybody everywhere, I tell everybody not to commit this error and had been careful to this point of time not to do it, but which everyone makes mistakes. But never treat anyone with contempt. For example, if you're a member of an ecclesia and you're a member of any committee, irrespective of what that committee is doing, be it from the arranging brethren down to the sisters class committee, Never treat anyone with contempt. If you have a, a, a few brethren and sisters that have been elected in a democratic way by the ecclesia to do whatever and you want to do something, go and talk to all of them. Now you may think to yourselves, well, you know, I've got this idea in my head, I know it's a good idea, one or two of the brethren think it's a good idea and the rest, well, they wouldn't really know any rate. And whatever they, ever their opinions might be, well, it's gonna, not going to add materially one way or the other to what we're going to do, so we won't bother to talk to them. But they have been elected by the ecclesia. And you, I'll tell you, brethren and sisters, if you forget them, they will be hurt and justifiably so. Whatever you do, don't treat each other with contempt. And you know, there are brethren and sisters, in our me- not only in our meeting, but wherever I've been, I've seen that in action, It isn't done maliciously, it isn't done deliberately, but it's done thoughtlessly. And I've seen the hurt that has resulted where somebody feels that they have at least been given the confidence of the Ecclesia to do something and have just been left right out of the consideration because someone thoughtlessly went ahead and did something because they felt that their opinion wasn't worth asking. And I think that's a very great mistake. I remember the early days of this ecclesia when we were very, very amateurish, a little bit less amateurish than we are now perhaps. We're pretty amateurish now. But I knew then that we were very, very united together and we had many decisions to make. But you know, brothers and sisters, we used to go from house to house, sometimes getting home till 9 and 10 o'clock at night for tea because we didn't want to do anything without the other one not knowing. And even though sometimes the opinions may not have been valuable, nonetheless they were solicited. Nobody was treated with contempt. And as I say, when I use the word contempt, I don't say we would deliberately do that. But we do that when we just leave people out of our calculations. And you know, you'll be surprised how much hurt that causes. You may never hear about it. 
The offender very seldom does. But those brothers and sisters do get hurt and sometimes that runs pretty deep. And all it requires is a little bit of thought as to who is involved in this, find out and solicit everyone's opinion. There are those who believe, of course, that you keep things to yourselves, you've got the best opinion and others only clutter up the matter. But you know, the Bible says... In the multitude of counsellors, there wanteth not wisdom. You know, when you take people into your confidence that you can have a measure of trust in, because the ecclesia certainly has, because they put them in office, then you can take them into your confidence, express your mind to them, solicit their opinion. You'll be surprised, brethren and sisters, that whilst all the opinions gathered may not add materially to your own, there will be a solidarity of purpose and a gratitude that you've asked them that will cement that group together. And if we can have the whole ecclesia like that, then I believe we've achieved a very great deal. So we're either going to be people who have similar abilities and our problem will be envy, or we're going to be people who have superior abilities and our problem's going to be treating people with contempt. Now we're going to beware of both of those things. Just beware of it. Now let's come to another very wonderful passage in Philippians. Oh, absolutely wonderful. We've been through this before, I think it's sometime or another, but it won't hurt us to go over it again. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, there is a very passionate appeal by the Apostle Paul for the unity of the Philippian Ecclesia. You know, brethren and sisters, the spirit of these verses is not very far from our motive in presenting this matter to you this evening because we're all members of the Enfield Ecclesia and some of us have been so for many, many years. And I think we have a deep love and respect for each other. And it's for that reason that we make this appeal tonight because really we, we have enjoyed a really wonderful period and we want that to continue to God's kingdom. And there are reasons why we want that. And there are reasons why we should exercise those principles to each other. And that's what the Apostle Paul had here. This ecclesia was a gem. To, to quote the Apostle, it was his joy and his crown in, the, in the, the Roman world. There was nobody quite like them. But they had their problems. And you know what their problems were? When you read between the lines of that chapter, or that book, their problems were that there were members who were similar, who were envious, and there were members who were superior who were treating others with contempt. And they were in this meeting. There were two sisters named in this epistle. Two sisters actually named in a letter. And they're both put down as labourers in the Lord. Obviously two sisters, highly talented, who were giving themselves over to the service of God. Fine sisters. Divided. Why? Because they probably were similar. And there was a little bit of envy, perhaps, got between them. But they were fine sisters. So the dangers don't only exist, brethren and sisters, with the weak in the meeting. The dangers exist with anyone with human nature. Be they classified in their own mind as weak or strong. We're all human. And that was the problem here in this ecclesia. Now, Paul makes an appeal. Let's read it, first of all. Then we'll put on this transparency. He makes an appeal to this ecclesia in chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfil ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
In other words, brethren and sisters, there has been a fourfold benefit received which should solicit from us a fourfold response. Let this mind be in you, is the theme of that epistle, of that chapter. And you know, we have received consolation from God, encouragement, comfort of love. We've had the incentive of God's love. We've had a fellowship with the Spirit. We are sharers of the Word of God, which is the Spirit. There's been bowels of mercy. There's been deep feelings. Now all of that has come from God. We ought to be like-minded. Because we've been encouraged, we ought to have the same sort of thinking for each other. If we've had the incentive and the comfort of God's love, we ought to be united in love. It's only common sense. If we've been sharers of the word in the fellowship of the Spirit, we ought to be in one accord, which in the Greek is joined as one soul. Absolutely indivisible. And if there's been deep feelings expressed towards us in the death of, the, of God's Son, then there ought to be one objective in the, in the minds of every brother and sister in this ecclesia. Now there is your fourfold benefit and there's your fourfold appeal. It opens up chapter 2 of Philippians. It's a very wonderful appeal. Now, what are the dangers that would mitigate against brethren and sisters manifesting that mind? Verse 3. Look what they are. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now, who would strive together in a good ecclesia? We're not talking now strife between good and evil. We're talking about strife in a good ecclesia. Who would strive together except those who have similar abilities? They're the ones likely to fight. And who would be vainglorious in an ecclesia but he or she who thinks they're superior? You know, the apostle was a wonderful student of human nature. If you look carefully at his writings, brethren and sisters, he doesn't give a lot of detail about human nature. He gets to the pith and marrow of the problems and he, he very often epitomises the real issues. Strife and vainglory. They're our problems, aren't they? Trouble between those who are similar. The diaglot renders that word strife as party factions. And vainglory, or empty glory as the Greek is, the RV and the RSV render that as conceit. And as I say, you're running it back to Corinthians, it's, you're either similar and there's envy, or there's superiority and there's contempt. And they are the problems. Now, how do we overcome that? Well, look. Read at the end of verse 3, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, how could you do that? Well, it's fairly easy, brethren and sisters, I think. But first of all, let's just get this out in our mind. The word better than themselves, in the Greek, the word really means to be more excellent. And although we don't want to dwell upon Greek words, and because we're not all Greek experts, there is this about this word, brethren and sisters, that it's a word which is used of dignitaries, of officialdom, of kings, of lords. So what the apostle here is saying, let each esteem each other to be 
excellent or superior or a lord, a king over themselves. Not very difficult because I'm in the truth, you're in the truth. There's no way you're going to tell me that I'm not going to be in the kingdom of God and I wouldn't dare tell you you wouldn't be. If therefore we wouldn't dare express that sort of an opinion, then it must be because we think that there's a great possibility that we will be in that kingdom. And if I get into the kingdom of God, brethren and sisters, and if you get in the kingdom of God, you are going to be a king and a priest. And that's how I've got to see you now. I've got to treat you as a dignitary. Now you think about that. Now, here's something that's very hard to think about. When the Apostle goes on with this chapter, he sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ as being the supreme example of that. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in a form of God, he never thought it a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God, which is the correct rendition, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, I want to try and get you... I know I've said this before. Somebody came up to me, I remember, and said that was really... They got the point, they appreciated it. Whether everybody... I don't know. But you, if, if you don't, you tell me after the meeting. Here we have an exhortation to brethren and sisters to consider themselves, consider each other better than themselves. And then, in the context of that, we've got the example of Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you. How on earth could he ever truthfully consider anyone better than himself? There's no way that he could truthfully do it. Let's face it. The only way that, in the sense that we're talking about, that the Lord could do that, really, was to believe a lie. And yet he's in that chapter as an example of that thinking. How can that be when he's perfect? And he knows he is. Which of you convinces me of sin? And he knows that nobody else is. Well, the answer, brethren and sisters, is this. That he considered himself as a man. That's the, that's the emphasis. He was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. And as the Lord considered his humanity, and he was human, no untruthfulness about that, and he considered the reason why he was going to die, to make you and me kings and priests, he was prepared not only to die to make us kings and priests, but to die the death which symbolised that he was the worst form of criminal so there he is up there not only suffering in agony but up there as it were like a neon light I am the worst form of criminal and I'm doing it to make you a king and a priest and although the Lord could never have believed anyone was better than himself in that sense as a fashion as a man dying for humanity he could see his, those who would become his brothers and sisters, the, the children of God, he could see them elevated as the excellencies of the coming age. And in that sense, 
he was prepared to align himself, in the eyes of man at least, with a criminal's death, that others might be elevated. Let that mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you just, you just apply the example. Say, for example, we really did think we were superior to the brethren and sisters. Say we had difficulty with that and thinking to ourselves, well, how could I consider, my, consider others better than myself? Because really, they're not. <coughs> and all you've got to do, brethren and sisters, is ask yourself the question, you can't do it, but he could. How is it that a perfect man was able to have that frame of mind and I can't skip to that frame of mind because there's conceit somewhere in us and we've got no reason to be conceited. There was none of it in him and yet looking at it from a human viewpoint there was every reason for him to be conceited if he wanted to be. But he couldn't, you see, because he knew it was all of God. He knew it was all of his father. He knew that. There were things in his mind which precluded that. But humanly speaking, looking at it from a human viewpoint, there was every reason why others would have been conceited. And here we are finding it difficult to consider each other better than ourselves and the example is none other than Jesus Christ the righteous. I find that incredible, brothers and sisters. That is an incredible thing. And when we consider that, then why can't we, because of the fourfold benefits received, of the encouragement, the love, the sharing of the word and the deep feelings of God, can't we have the same thinking, be united in love, joined as one soul and have one objective? That's common sense, based upon reason. And they are the positive things in life. Now, let me give you a little practical illustration of how that you consider you can consider others better than yourself. I've said this before, those of you, some of you may not have heard me say it, but I've adopted a practice. I don't say I've done it deliberately, but I found myself doing it many years ago and I encouraged it because I just found it to be an instinctive thing, first of all, and then I used to encourage it in myself. Because we always had children of various ages, Vern and I, it was always our lot to sit either in the back hall, if we didn't have a back hall in the early days, at least near the back of the meeting. And it was Sunday morning when we got here reasonably early, which sometimes we did and sometimes we didn't. But in any case, we used to sit there and I would look at the backs of the heads of the brethren and sisters as an exercise before that meeting. And I would think to myself about those brothers and sisters, what they were doing for Christ. Not what, I, what they did that I objected to, but I used to think to myself, you know, you take that sister, she don't say much. She's a shy sister, you know, and very embarrassed when you talk to her. But she goes out of her way to do certain work, which puts her in the limelight, which must really be a, a very great embarrassment to her, but that's what she does. Or a brother over here. He hasn't got a lot of ability to do certain things. But you can see a constant endeavour, constant endeavour in his life to curb certain tendencies in him that he might not be an irritation to the meeting, that he might be a help to that meeting. And you can see him trying desperately to do that, though everything in nature is against him. And you know, by the time that meeting started, you've filled your mind with whatever virtue you can see in that meeting. You haven't covered it all, but you've covered some of it. And then, of course, by reason of the exercise of your mind in that way, working from brother to sister, sister to brother, back to that meeting, you eventually come to that table. 
and there you see it all epitomised. And, and not only that, but you see the reason why they are doing what they're doing. And in that way, you can esteem each other better than yourselves. You try that. I think it would be a very poor and miserably minded brother or sister who couldn't sit in this meeting and look around them and find some inspiration in what others are trying to do for God. Very easy to find fault, but it's a miserable person who can't see in others something that's better than themselves. Fairly miserable person. And that's all the apostle was saying. And here is the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, a servant. First of all, he took upon himself the form of a servant. What's that but considering others better than himself? He was serving them, considering them better than himself in that sense and finally dying as a criminal to make them kings and priests in the age to come. Wonderful example, brethren and sisters, and that's the call we have for unity as far as our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. Galatians 5 and 6, another one of these unity passages. Over the years we've traversed these epistles in, in a sort of a detailed study of each epistle, but you come across these passages which have, of course, most of them, all of them really, the writings of the Apostle Paul, which have the same characteristic thinking in them, but put in different ways. Now in this chapter, in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, running around about um, verse 13 through to about chapter 6 and verse um, 10, you have, I believe, the theme of that our personal responsibility is ecclesial cooperation. Now you think about that. I think if you wrote that as a heading of that section of Galatians, that wouldn't be far wrong. Our personal responsibility is ecclesial cooperation. So that's why we say earlier that to say that salvation is an individual matter can be true or untrue. It can be true if we mean that our individual responsibility is to work with and for the ecclesia. But if we mean that salvation is an individual matter, that we can live the truth irrespective of our brothers and sisters, then that is false. So that our personal responsibility in this section of Galatians is our ecclesial cooperation. You know, it's beautifully illustrated. But you look at the way he does it. You take in verse um, 16, he says... This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfil the lust of the flesh. Now the word walk there really literally means what it says, to walk. So as an individual would walk. But then he says in verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And that word walk there isn't to walk as an individual, it means to walk in line. So the point he's making is this. Walking in the spirit as an individual, is to walk in line with everyone else. Now, if you don't think that's what he means, listen to this. Chapter 6. Bear ye one another's burdens. Verse 5. For every man shall bear his own burden. 
which by which he means that every man's individual burden is to bear everyone else's. Now, if that doesn't mean that, then I'm a blind man. So you've got people walking individually and only so doing because they're walking in line. You've got people accepting their personal responsibility in the ecclesia but only so doing because they're accepting the responsibility for others. That's what the Apostle is saying in that section. Now let's illustrate it here on this transparency. Our personal responsibility is ecclesial cooperation. Know about that. So walking in the Spirit, personally, chapter 5, verse 16. Ecclesially, verse 25. There are two divisive evils. End of chapter 6. What are they? Verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. What are the two evils, brethren and sisters? Again, vainglory, envy. Remember? Envy, the result that of people who think they're similar, but one's a little bit superior to the other, and he, he becomes envious. Or those who think they're clearly superior, and there's a little bit of contempt. Envying one another, vainglory. Same as the ones in the other two chapters, in Philippians, of course, and in Corinthians. So there is a busy diesel. Uh, out they come again. Bearing our burdens personally, verse 5, pleasurely, verse 2. And then Paul gives a practical demonstration of what he means. In Galatians 6 and verse 6, he says this, Let him that is taught in the word communicate, koinonia, cooperate with, share with, him that teacheth in all good things. So there's two classes that need to cooperate. And those two classes, again, are not just two separate like classes, but Paul is taking just the two classes to illustrate virtually the whole ecclesia because we fall somewhere in those classes. We're either teachers or pupils. Now, I don't mean by that we're literally teachers or literally pupils. But there are people in this meeting who are apt to teach, whether they teach from here or is standing in that hall or in Sunday school or wherever. They can teach, they can convey, they can communicate the word in some way or another. There are those brethren and sisters who through no fault of their own have to depend upon them. They have to come to classes, they have to be in the facility of people who know the word because they just simply can't get it for themselves. There are such people in the world. Our ecclesia is made up of those two general classes. We either have ability to glean and to disseminate the word, or we haven't. We need to gather it from others. But whatever, there needs to be koinonia, cooperation between teachers and pupils. Pupils, definitely. So we go to a study class. The fellow that sits up the front, he's obviously the teacher. Because we're sitting in the audience, for the moment we may be pupils, we may be teachers also. But there are a lot of people here who are not teachers, but they are pupils. doesn't mean to say that there is a teacher here and there are pupils there. It means that there are a group of brethren and sisters in which God is active in their lives, using each one severally as he will. And they ought to realise that 
and there ought to be a communication or koinonia, a sharing together, irrespective of their status, according to their ability. So that, all right, we have personal responsibilities and we have ecclesial responsibilities. So, for the, for the sake of illustration, I happen to be tonight the teacher. You happen to be sitting out there, the pupil. It may be reversed as we go through our ecclesial world, our ecclesial year. My personal responsibility as a teacher is to cooperate with you. And your personal responsibility is to cooperate with me. That's what Paul says. So it's a practical demonstration of the point that he's making in Galatians. So we walk in the spirit when we walk ecclesially. We walk in rank. The two things that are going to break rank is vainglory and envy. Now look, assuming that glass of water is the head of the line, a rank of people, maybe half a dozen or more, and there's one down here and he's on the end of the line, or on one end of the line, and they're walking together like that, as a line, as walking in the spirit ecclesially. What's going to break that rank? When this fellow up here thinks, you know, really... Uh, when you look at the ecclesia, I'm bothered if I know what they do without me. He immediately out in front, isn't he? If you look down from the side, he's no longer got a line. He's out on his own. The chap down here, he's thinking to himself as they walk along, <laughs> who wants me? I mean, all right, I've got certain abilities, but not as good as him. He falls back there. So you no longer got a line. That's what the Apostle's talking about. It's a military term, really. He's talking about walking in rank. And anyone who's going to break that rank when he gets out in front or he falls behind. And envy or vainglory is going to do that. It needs to be that way, brethren and sisters. Nothing can be done that way if everyone esteems each other better than themselves. Striving to walk ecclesially. That can only be done that way. And if you think of the thousand and one ways in which you can get out of rank, by you know, not walking ecclesially together. As I say, just simply by thoughtful, thoughtlessness. Charging off to do something without thinking. Suddenly realising, oh dear, I dear. That brother was pointed to do that. I should have told him. What you've done, you've rust off and you've broke that ring. He in turn could get upset to the degree where he becomes despondent and never recovers. Falls behind. And so all sorts of things can happen. And you, you can only make your application in your own mind of how we can become so divisive in our thinking. You know, you can do that in so many ways. You can have a Sunday school class of little kiddies. And you could forget to send one of them an invitation to a birthday party or something, whatever the case may be. I don't know. All the things that go on in life. You may not upset the little kitty because they're too innocent. You might upset their parents. You know, brethren and sisters, tragic it is as it is. One of the great evils which causes division and ecclesia is the blindness of parents to their children. Not blindness in the sense of the, of the parent to its child's evils, but blindness in its loyalty to that child above the ecclesia. That is a very great evil and rampant in every meeting. And you know, you can find sensitivity among brethren and sisters, if not with themselves, you can create that with their children, a sensitivity which you didn't know existed. But when you touch that centre of their life, there's something there that is beyond explaining. And you know, we should never, ever be blind to that aspect of things. We should look, yes, 
Family loyalty, a wonderful thing. No one's going to say anything different to that. We should stand up for our families. We should fight for our families, encourage our families. But never, brethren and sisters, never, ever, to the extent that we divide the ecclesia. This ecclesia comes before my family. Make no mistake about that, because if it doesn't, then I'm saying this, that my family is far more important than God's. That's what I'm saying. We look after God's family, he'll look after ours, providing, of course, we meet our responsibilities. But never let us forget that. And always remember this, brethren and sisters, in this respect, as much as you adore your child, it may not have come into the truth. It may not be in God's purpose. Who knows? There are brethren and sisters who know that tragically and sadly. And yet you could put that child above God's family. And you know, that is done. And it's done to a very great hurt. And that's where a sensitivity needs to be exercised towards each other, especially when it comes to our families. A, we should personally see to it, as mothers and fathers, that as much as we adore our lovely little perfect children, that we do not put them above the ecclesia. And B, we should exercise as individuals responsibility towards those children that we don't upset their parents because we know that's a human failing. And there's ever-present dangers in that respect. And it's tragically true that blood is thicker than water and sometimes, brethren and sisters, blood becomes thicker than spirit. And it's a tragic thing to see that. So that you think about all the avenues of ecclesial life that's open to you and all the ever-present dangers also that you can fall into for reasons that you may not understand, but they're always there. Be careful to walk in line. Always have a look, either side of you. Am I in step with everybody else? If you find yourself not in step, find the reasons why and get back into step. Because that's the Apostle's exhortation. A very wonderful exhortation. You know what he does, brethren and sisters? He says in verse 6, we've quoted this, let him that is a pupil or that is taught in the word share with him who is the teacher. And you know, we say, oh, we'll do that. And so brethren and sisters seemingly make a conscious endeavour to break down the, the stratas of society in ecclesial life and they say, well, we'll break down the stratas of ecclesial society. And they seem to make a conscious endeavour to do that. If they're not doing it that in all good faith, brethren and sisters, then the next verse says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. That said in the context of ecclesial cooperation. So we could be going along in this meeting with everyone seeming to make a conscious, a conscious endeavour to get on together and to have fellowship with each other. But if it's not true, in the context of that statement, don't be deceived, God knows. And what is the figure? He's not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. When are we going to reap for the wrong attitude in this respect, brethren and sisters, if we are, try, if we are being seen externally trying to get onto each other, but harbour evil thinking, bearing grudges, envying or holding in contempt, and we do that secretly, God is not mocked, 
it will be revealed when the seed comes to fruition in the kingdom of God. Because all of a sudden, we will see the wheat go into the kingdom and among that wheat may be the brother or sister that we couldn't possibly work with, really. Even though we might have given external appearance of that for the moment. But when when the harvest comes and we see them as part of that harvest, our heart will sink within us because the truth of it will all be revealed then. God is not mocked. Now that's the context of Galatians 5 and 6. Let's just take one more in conclusion, brethren and sisters. Romans 15. Wonderful chapter. Oh boy. This perhaps more than all others really illustrates the point of cooperation between classes of people. Two very basic classes here. Not teacher and pupil this time, but weak and strong. That's what Paul calls them. Romans 14 verse 1, him that is weak in the faith. Romans 15 verse 1, we then that are strong. Did you notice how he put it? See how Paul put it? Him that is weak, but we that are strong. That's how we think, don't we? Him that is weak, we that are strong. That's not entirely all Paul's meaning there, but that's very often how we think. So there are your two classes. Now, who are the weak and who are the strong? In the, in the context, I'm dealing now in this context, please understand that. I'm not now talking about us, I'm talking about here, in this case, the Romans. Who were they? Well, in the context, they were Jew and Gentile, basically. They may not all have been Jews and all Gentiles, but basically they fell into those two national characters, Jew and Gentile. The Jew was looked upon as weak because he was over-scrupulous, very careful, wouldn't touch this, wouldn't touch that, wouldn't touch something else. Forever living a life of, of very stringent, very scrupulous about this and very scrupulous about that, giving an appearance of towering strength. Paul said he's weak because he had a sensitivity about material and worldly things. And because he was sensitive about lesser things and paying the attention of touch not, taste not, handle not, though giving the appearance of a very strong and very upright brother, he's weak because of the little issues were that which governed his life and the massive issues he'd overlooked. That was a weak brother. The strong were those who came into the truth with none of those petty scruples of eat this or don't eat this, touch that or not, don't touch that. But those who came into the truth, brethren and sisters, knowing the love of God and the power of God in their lives and the tremendous power of Christ's sacrifice and example and whose lives were governed by the massive things of the truth that little matters like that didn't care for. Belly for meats and meats for the belly, says the apostle, but I won't be brought under the power of any. You'll never bring under me to the petty power of those minute things, the massive things of judgment, of the love of God and of mercy. These are the things the apostle stood for. Now those were the two classes. But there was need nonetheless between those two classes for understanding because we are different. And some people just can't see some issues and other people can't see other issues. 
and we never seem to be able to get some principles into each other's minds. We both think we're right, but we never seem to convince each other that we're right. And there's a need, therefore, sometimes, brethren and sisters, not to give up in despair and say, well, to heck with you, but to treat each other with a bit of toleration. And I use that word in the sense, within the bounds and the perimeters of good, sound doctrine and moral principles. But we do differ even in the bounds of, of, of those principles, not in doctrine, but we certainly differ in the bounds of some principle. And in those bounds, we need to exercise somewhat of a, a patient attitude towards each other or a long-suffering attitude. Now, this is the context of Romans 14 and 15. And he does it this way. You listen to this in chapter 15. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Now let's pause there, brethren and sisters. We ought not to please ourselves. Let everyone please our neighbour for his good. See, Paul's not advocating toleration to the point of you acceding to error or wrong. He's not asking anyone to compromise. But he says, let us please his neighbour for good. If that's the motive, then that's high. To his edification. And the example, who is the example? Notice who it is. It's not Jesus. It's not even Jesus Christ. It's Christ and he leaves the title on its own because he wants to tell us that the one who set forth the supreme example is the supreme. He is the Messiah. So he leaves off the name. Why does he? Because you see, brethren and sisters, he didn't please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee, God, fell on me. So let's illustrate what Paul means. He says to you and I, let's not please ourselves, let's please each other. But we say, oh, wait a minute, Paul. Look, Paul, that brother's abused me. He's abused me. He's called me all sorts of nasty names. He's, he's put round scurrilous rumours about me. He said this or said that. I won't have that. Well, Paul's answer is this. Who are you in the first place? You're, you're a Mr. Nobody. Consider the Christ. Whose insults did he put up with? They didn't only insult him, brethren and sisters. They insulted his father. The reproaches of them that reproached thee, God, fell on me. And if a man could hold his peace for the sake of humanity in a situation like that, and you and I go to God and say, we couldn't exercise that attitude because they abused us. Oh, for goodness sake. What would have you done on that cross? With all the insults that were hurled, not at him, brethren and sisters, he could bear with that, but at his father. And he held his peace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he was the Messiah, and he put up with the insults to his father. Now you think of that that would have taken from him an enormous self-control. 
And you know yourself that you can put up with insults to you. They can call you for what they like. But when they start abusing your God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when you react. Why? Because we have a love for the Father. A love for his Son. But brethren and sisters, our love for the Father is prophetic against the love he had. And so the Apostle says, you be very careful that you don't put that excuse up. Consider what he did. Now, listen to this, verse 4 and 5. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and comfort, same Greek word, grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Jesus Christ. Now let's sift this one out. There were certain things written for our learning, brethren and sisters. Now Paul says that Christ showed the supreme example not simply by what he did, but for the reason he did it. For Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written. So he did it for a reason. That was a motive behind it. It was written in his Father's word. That's why he did it. Now Paul says, for whatsoever things were written, were written for our learning, that we might exercise patience and comfort. Do you know what was written in that verse of scripture, brethren and sisters? The reproaches of them that reproach thee have fallen on me. That's only half the verse. The other half says, he was eaten up with the zeal of the house of God. And John 2 verse 17 says they understood that half and they never ever considered that half. In other words, they were comforted. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They were comforted with that, but they never showed an ounce of patience when the reproaches of them that reproached God fell on him. And that was written for their learning. And they learned half of it. The half that suited them. The half that appealed to them. Isn't that incredible? That that verse should be quoted in that context. Written for our learning. Two things, brethren and sisters. The zeal of the house hath eaten me up, but the reproaches of them that reproach thee have fallen on me. That's what Psalm 69 and verse 9 says. And so there's a need, therefore, to show patience and comfort. Now you take the two classes, Jew and Gentile. Look at them. You look at them in relation to God. You take the Jew who wore, almost wore God's patience out. Well, it did wear it out on several occasions, if I can use that expression, of course, as a figure of speech. But who tried God's patience by all their disobedience to him and yet put on a front of all that, the scrupulous way in which they jot and tittled, annas and cummin and all the minor weights of the law, giving all the appearance of being strong and wearing God's patience out. And yet he patiently bore with them, brethren and sisters. If ever there was a class of people that needed patience, it was the Jew. What about the Gentile? Who languished in debauchery and immorality, in hopelessness for years. And God waited and waited till the day came when the door of faith was opened to the Gentiles and the comfort of the truth was offered to them. And wasn't it a comfort? 
Wasn't that a comfort to all those people? The Philippian jailer, Lydia, a seller of purple, and all the others, to, the, to, the, to those who were brought into the truth, the Onesimus, and all those faithful men, Phoebe, Priscilla and Aquila, and all those others who were out there, not so much Priscilla and Aquila, they were Jews, but those other Gentiles who were called to the truth. What a comfort that was to them, brethren and sisters. So the Apostle's point is this. We need to learn patience and comfort from the Scripture because God is patient and he offers comfort. And we need to be like-minded. So when you epitomise the teaching of Romans 15, coming back to our point of ecclesial unity, here it all is, it's epitomised like this. We've got to be like-minded toward each other. Why? Because we've got to exercise the attitude of God towards each other. If that's God's attitude, it's got to be our attitude. Like-minded is being like-minded with God. This is how God thinks. So in the two basic classes, him that is weak, we that is strong. Group one, that is the weak, were the over-scrupulous. Towards the over-scrupulous, we've got to exercise patience. Now we've got the over-scrupulous in our meeting. We've got people on special diets who believe that that's the way God would have us to live. We sometimes wear our patience thin a bit with all the way they keep insisting upon we ought to be eating this, we ought to be drinking that. We've got people who put a lot of emphasis upon external matters. We've got people who are very scrupulous over very minor things. And sometimes that gets very irritating. We've got to be prepared to exercise patience. The Jew is like that. We've got to be very patient with people. That. They've got their reasons. We might not agree with them. But they mean well. That's how they see it. It's not doing any harm to me or you. They're not violating any scriptural principle, nor are they violating any doctrine, of course. We're not talking about that. But in the context of those things, we've got those scrupulous people, and they can be very irritating. We've got to exercise patience. In group two, we've got the seeming liberal. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that. I don't believe that we've got, we want to ever tolerate liberality. Liberal matters, brethren and sisters, are way up. We're not having a bar of that. But there are people who don't altogether agree with those little matters either. And sometimes they are branded as being liberal when they're really not. Because they take care of those things in their mind with the massive principles of the truth. And they see they may seem to be liberal, but you know, those people sometimes suffer the greatest criticism. They need our comfort. And that was the Gentile. And you take a Jew and Gentile. Gentile comes into the truth. And he came in second. He didn't come in first, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. He came in second and he took his place in the ecclesia. He sat down. You look at him sitting next to the Jew. Boy. And here he is in the ecclesia. Here is a brother over here, the Jew, who's got family traditions in the truth going way back. When I say in the truth, he's now in the truth of the gospel but at least his family were Jews and they had the form and knowledge of the truth in the law, didn't they? They didn't hold error in that sense. They had the oracles of God. And though they rejected finding the Messiah, yet in the Old Testament scriptures, they treasured and they were the custodians of the oracles of God. So he would consider himself not exactly a new member of the Ecclesia, but rather perhaps as a, a better directed one now. With family traditions and comforts going back for years, Poor Gentile sits there and where his family is, some of them wouldn't even know. 
probably a lot of the Corinthians wouldn't even know who their family was anyway. And perhaps many of them, thousands of them throughout the Roman world were the only members of their family in the trip. And they certainly didn't have any traditions going way back. All they could think about perhaps was the only tradition of religion they might have had was some pagan idolatry, a belief in the god Python or something like that. And they were ashamed of the stupidity of all that and feeling the loneliness of the of the fact that they'd once been estranged from God and now were in the truth and yet they've got to come shoulder to shoulder with those who immediately started putting upon them, got to do this, got to do that, got to do this. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to drain your meat before you eat it because you can't eat blood. You've got to wash your hands before the meals. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. And you can imagine, brothers and sisters, the stresses and strains in an ecclesia like that. Now we haven't got that in its exaggerated form. We've got in this meeting people who can name three, if not four, generations of Christianism. And we've got people in this meeting whose families are destitute of the truth and who suffer from time to time when their relatives come to visit them as they ever do. They suffer the severe and harsh criticism of the truth and of their so-called disloyalty to family unity. We all got to come and sit together. Now, to one class, we need to be very patient. And to the other class, we need to exercise a great deal of comfort because God did and you know, brethren and sisters, he did it in this way in verses 8 and 9. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a servant, a servant, as the word minister means, of the Jewish people, the circumcision. He was a servant of the Jewish people for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. How did he do that? Well... He dies upon the cross. What did he die for? He died to remove the curse of the law. When the curse of the law was removed, the blessing of Abraham, of course, came into full effect. Because though it was the first to be given, as Brother Thomas says, it was the second to come into force, the new covenant. So when he died upon the cross, he did away with the curse of the law and the curse of mortality, so the curse of the law cursed the Jews as well as the curse of mortality and the curse of mortality cursed the Gentiles. He took away the curses that were holding them off from God and he put into effect the promises made to Abraham. What did the promises made to Abraham teach? It taught that, God, that Abraham's seed, the Jewish people, would be a great nation and it taught also that he would be the father of many nations. So in one act of agony and suffering, the long-standing patience of the Jewish people was brought to finality that what they'd been patiently waiting for was now confirmed that the true seed of Abraham of which they had been the fleshly members has now come to fruition where they are now the spiritual household of Abraham and the mercy of God was shown to the Gentiles because that man's name means the father of many nations. That's how like-minded God was toward that matter. Now the point is, Paul says, let us be like-minded toward each other. 
And I suppose, brethren and sisters, we can say that we're going to fall into the category of either teacher or pupil. So we're going to be people who have the ability to absorb and disseminate the word or we're going to be people who love the word just as much as they do but need the help of others. We're going to fall into one of those categories. We're going to fall into the category of either being weak or strong. Whatever. We might be a little bit over-scrupulous. We may have the honesty to recognise that. I don't know. We may also be, in the sense, free from those minor things and living up to grander and glorious <coughs> principles. I don't know. But we're going to fall into those categories somewhere along the line. But whatever we're going to fall into, brethren and sisters, we've got to work together. That is the burden of Philippians, of Romans, Galatians, Corinthians. Wherever we look, that's what the Apostle's telling us. And so as we come to the end of tonight's discussion, brethren and sisters, we do hope that's been helpful. I'd like you to think about it. I think it's a very, very wonderful thing that we can work and live together in the truth as we do. And I hope in God's mercy that when we come back next time, we'll give a lot of thought to this, I, I know the theme, I'm going to, I want to take that passage in Hebrews 12, the spirits of just men made perfect, which to my mind is one of the most delightful expressions in all Paul's writings. The spirits of just men made perfect. The word spirits, I believe, is used in the sense of the disposition, the characteristics and disposition of people. The word just, of course, used in the sense of a person that's justified by faith. And the word perfect used in the sense of perfect in that context. And what that is teaching is this, that we're going to see, brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of that verse, we're going to see very shortly the end-filled ecclesia in the kingdom of God. And everyone in that ecclesia in the kingdom will have nothing left in them that irritates but that every good disposition and characteristic that is being developed now is all that will be left. And so that all we learn to admire in each other now is all we'll have to think about each other then. The spirits of justified men made perfect.